like me experience Christmas, and, and not just me, but our family, and, and perpetually I've experienced Christmas about this way, um, hurried and harried and um, flustered and frustrated because of all that there is to do, and in the back of your mind is this nagging thought that Christmas is supposed to mean something, and because of all of the distraction and all that is happening, all of the busyness that takes place, there's shopping and gift wrapping and decorating to do and cooking and baking and cleaning and parties and dinners to attend and people to please and everything that goes along with it. Many of us, if we are not careful, will find ourselves on December 26th or on January 2nd and we will realize that Christmas is over again, and we missed it because we've been so distracted and busy. I'm not sure how many of you need to hear this this morning, uh, but it's something that I know I need to be reminded of, is simply this. How do you miss Christmas, or, or better still, how do you not miss Christmas? How do you not miss Christmas? You know, most of the world missed its first Christmas. Christ came, God become flesh, and most of the world continued to turn and continued to operate uh, with relatively few people taking significant notice. Luke chapter 2, verse 7, I think, sums it up very clearly, the reality of how the world missed its first Christmas. And it simply says this, And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. No place for them, no room for them in the inn. We live in a world today that by and large has no room for Jesus Christ. Christmas starts coming out, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but Christmas starts happening earlier and earlier as the years go by. Now we have Christmas out at the stores, the department stores. It's happening right after, uh, seeming like the end of October, 1st of November, Christmas is coming out. Um, and it is all about the commercialism and, of course, the, the traditions, and, and many of the traditions mean something. They mean something to us. In fact, the reason we celebrate the way we do, it is, it is the traditional means, uh, the traditional way that we keep Christmas. It's part of our tradition. And so it's not necessarily bad in and of itself, but without special care, the real 
substance of what Christmas is all about will, will be completely lacking and completely missing in our lives if we allow ourselves to be sucked in to everything that the world tells us Christmas is all about. How do you miss Christmas? Or better yet, how do you not miss Christmas? The people in Jesus' day, many of them should have known, and some of them had the perfect opportunity to engage the reality of Christmas as it happened. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees, should have known. In fact, to a degree, they did know. You remember the story of the wise men who came seeking the Christ child, the baby that was born, and they said we, they went to Jerusalem. Of course, they assumed it would be in the capital city, and they were seeking, and all of the city was in an uproar because of these men, these wise men that had come from the east, and Herod was greatly disturbed about this report that a new king had been born, and so he inquired of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they were able to tell him because of the prophecies recorded, the birthplace of the Messiah. They knew. They knew. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. They had a means by which, if they had been paying attention and calculating, they could have estimated the time, the approximate time of his arrival based on what we read from Daniel chapter 9. Possibly they, they had the information, they had the wherewithal to be, to be watchful, and in fact, they were living in a time of their own history when they were longing and looking for a Messiah. They were longing and looking for someone. In fact, I have read in some, uh, from some sources that there were families who named their children specifically on purpose names similar to Jesus or Yeshua because they were looking, they were longing for someone who would be a Savior a Messiah. There were some who should have known. Some had the perfect opportunity to engage the first Christmas as it happened. The innkeeper always gets uh, a, a bad reputation because of his experience uh, with Christmas. And uh, we see in our minds Mary and Joseph coming uh, to the inn and requesting a place. And because of the circumstances of the day and perhaps the busyness, all of the, of the vacant rooms, all of the available lodging was taken. And so verse 7 of Luke chapter 2 sums it all up by saying, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and laid him in a manger in a stable, because there was no room for them in the inn. And the innkeeper is accused of all kinds of, uh, of sins, of grievances, from uh, commercialism to distraction, because he did not make room for Mary and Joseph. I mean, really, think about it. What kind of a person do you have to be to stand at your door and turn away a, a man 
with his pregnant wife who she's about ready to, to give birth at any moment. And you say, sorry, no room for you. There are a couple of notable exceptions to those that missed Christmas. The shepherds uh, around the, the hillsides of Bethlehem did not miss Christmas. They came and worshipped at the manger. But, you know, they, I, I could have made it too if I'd have had an angel choir sing to me. Uh, I don't think I would have missed that. An angelic visitation with, with an angel choir singing, Glory to God in the highest and on peace. I would have been right there with the shepherds saying, Hey, let's go see what this is all about. This is a big deal. In other words, they had, there, there was divine intervention. There was supernatural revelation to the shepherds. They knew something had happened. The wise men were another uh, notable exception to this. Now, traditionally, we have our wise men present at the manger scene, and most of us are aware that the wise men did not come to the manger. Uh, they, they were later than that. Jesus was, was most likely uh, uh, perhaps close to the age of a toddler. And in fact, we, as we read the story, the account of Scripture, Herod had all of the, the baby boys two years and under. To, to be killed. So uh, Jesus could have been as old as two years of age when the wise men came. However, they, they were ones who they didn't miss out. They said, we have seen his star and we've come to worship him. But again, they did not miss it, but these were men who were watching and they had a supernatural event, a sign that revealed to them, hey, something has happened. These groups of people, the wise men and the shepherds, they were responding to supernatural intervention. But without the angelic announcement to the shepherds and without the star in the east, who would have come to the manger? Would anybody have come? I doubt if anybody would have come. The shepherds wouldn't have come without the angel choirs. The wise men would not have come without the star. So who was it that without these things did not fail to miss Christmas? And according to the scripture, there are only two people who, as far as we can tell, without any supernatural sign or revelation... They got it. They did not miss it. And the first one that we read about is Simeon. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25, we read this. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. Simeon did not miss 
the birth of the Christ child. He had been watching. And notice as, as we read through those verses, there is something, there's an idea that repeats itself throughout those verses. It says that the Holy Spirit was upon him. It says that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And you might say, Pastor, just a minute ago you said that this was without supernatural revelation. I, I believe it was. It was not a, it was not a, a, a choir singing like the, like the shepherds experienced. It was not a star in the east, but it was something revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit reveal to people? It is that soft, still voice in the inner person that somehow gives an inner knowledge or awareness of truth. It, it's not anything that we would call miraculous or supernatural. And this is what Simeon experienced. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Spirit. And when he came to the temple, it says he came in the Spirit. He came in the Spirit into the temple. Now, I don't know about you, but I think this is significant. That in the life of Simeon, the Holy Spirit was upon him. It was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. And when he came to the temple, he came to church. He came in the Spirit. Now, I understand that this is taking place before the day of Pentecost. And there are details about that that we could debate, and I do believe that during different times in history, the Holy Spirit has operated according to different functions and different roles. However, I think there's something here that we, we should not miss. We should not miss about Simeon, that he came, the Holy Spirit was on him, it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, and he came in the Spirit. Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, talks about walking in the Spirit. In verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And he goes on to give us a list of the works of the flesh and then the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. In verse 25 of Galatians chapter 5, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. We say we live by the Spirit, let us walk with the Spirit. This is the idea of, of a soldier marching in cadence. In other words, they're paying attention to, to their instructor, their drill instructor, and they're paying attention to the people that are around them, and they're keeping in step. I believe Simeon was keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. He was, he was attuned to the voice of God working and speaking in his life. I believe another verse that the Apostle Paul gives us that makes this a little bit more clear is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, which says simply this, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with 
with the Spirit. And the emphasis there is on the, <clears throat> the ongoing present tense. That is a present tense command where we can literally say this, be being filled or keep on being filled with the Spirit. And when we look at this verse, the idea of the fullness of the Spirit and, and the meaning behind it is obvious to us. It is, one, it is an issue of control. In other words, who is in control of your life and your actions and the steps that you take? <clears throat> I remember early on in uh, our marriage, Rachel and I, a, a source of conflict, not major conflict, but a source of conflict was how were we going to work out Christmas celebration with us as a new family and also with my family who wanted us to be present and also with her family who wanted us to be present. And, uh, and I don't know, some of you, I've heard of some people who just say, you know, we're going to just do our own thing. But if you, are a, if you are a family that cares much at all about tradition and family traditions, and that's your background, then, then that can cr create some real tension as you try to figure out how to navigate that. Who, you know, where, what family, who are we going to spend Christmas with, and which side of the family, and when are we going to do it, and how is it all going to work out, and how are we all going to work it out? Trying to blend the Christmas traditions of two different families and two different backgrounds. By the way, most of you already know this. I, probably everybody already. Some of you, there's still a few young people, young families, uh, young people that have yet to be married. This is just some free, has nothing to do with this message, just some free advice. When you, when you marry someone, you are not just marrying that person, but you are also marrying that person's family. <laughs> that's, that's worth thinking about. Okay, let's just move on from there. The issue of who is going to be in control and who is going to call the shots. And one of the things that happens uh, very often at Christmas time is there's so many things vying or, or competing for control of our lives and our activities and what we are doing. Our circumstances, you know, the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that there's always going to be something seeking to control our lives. Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. In other words, do not let the world press you into its mold. And as Christians, we must be watchful and wary that we are continually going against the flow, against the current of this world and the direction that this world is going. And the commercialism and the materialism of the world that we see 
just rush to the forefront of our, uh, of our attention, especially at Christmas time, will seek to control us. The circumstances of life, the unreasonable expectations of the world, the traditions that we have will seek to control us. And I will be honest with you when I say that many times uh, I, I mentioned the trouble that existed in our family and trying to figure out how to reconcile two families' Christian traditions. It, it created a conflict to where much of the holiday season, our focus was on trying to figure out how we were going to keep both of our families happy and how we were going to be happy at Christmas time. And it rushes past and you end up realizing Christmas has not meant to me personally, what it really ought to mean. That's why a week or two ago we sang to you, Lord, I want your presence for Christmas. I want to feel your spirit in my soul. And yes, I want to spend time with my family and I want to be there when the rest of the family is there and all of that, you know, my cousins and the, pe the people that I grew up with and all of that. There, there's just something special and meaningful about that. There are times that I enjoy about that, but more than any of that, to know that I've got the presence of Jesus with me at Christmas time. Dare I say it, there are appetites and desires that will seek to control you at Christmas time. Well, there was one more who did not fail to miss the Christ child, and her name is Anna. We read about Anna in Luke chapter 2. Verse 36, beginning with verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him, of the Christ child, to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Very little told to us about Anna, but there are a couple of things that I want to point out to you that are noteworthy. One, she did not depart from the temple. She lived at church. Do you live at church? Say, oh, pastor, this building would get cold during the week. It does get cold in here during the week, by the way. Um, but are you aware, do you remember, do you recall that our Bibles tell us we are the temple. We are the church. I am the church. You are the church. And God's Spirit dwells within us. And Anna lived at church. And we have the ability through the direction of our thoughts 
and the things that we allow our minds to dwell upon, we have the ability to to decide and determine whether or not we will live at church. To some people, there are certain days that are sacred and special and mean more than others. I, I, I both appreciate, but I also sometimes find it humorous, the, the laws that are passed regulating the times and places that sell certain types of adult beverages, where they can operate and, and how they can be in business. Because, you know, you can, you can operate and be located in certain places, but not others. You know, schools, that makes sense, but also in some places, churches. Well, you know, you can't be too close to a church, or if you are too close to a church, you can't be open at certain hours. You have to wait until certain times. And I think, well, I guess that's thoughtful in a way, but isn't that, you know, that's very clearly compartmentalizing sacred and secular, and we tend to do this. You know, we have little boxes, and we say, Sunday, this is the Lord's Day, you know. And so, well, I'm, I, you know, okay, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do that, because it's Sunday, it's the Lord's Day. And I, I understand that, and I'm not saying there's no value to, to that perspective. But as New Testament Christians, we ought to remember that every day is the Lord's Day. And every day, there is nothing that should be separated away from the sacred in our lives. She did not depart from the temple, but she stayed there worshiping night and day. And I have to tell you, this reminds me of the words of Jesus from John chapter 15, when he speaks to the disciples and he talks to them about abiding in me. John 15, verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. There's this matter of of abiding in Christ. And to think of abiding, it is simply to, to stay, to remain somewhere, to stay connected as the, as the branch abides in the vine and draws its nutrients and its fruitfulness through its connection to the vine. As long as it stays connected, it's, it's got life, abiding. And then in a, another verse that I'm reminded of in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where Jesus says to the church that has shut him out, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If any man will hear my voice and open the door, if any man will welcome me in, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. And this, these two ideas, these two words, the abiding welcome, this is what I see in Anna, the prophetess. Anna was someone who was maintaining an abiding welcome to Christ. She was living in a place where she was ready at any moment. She did not depart from the temple. She was worshiping night and day, and God was always welcome there. A good example from the Old Testament of maintaining an abiding welcome is a story that we read in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you remember there the story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman, the woman, and they, they were a family of some means, and she went to her husband as, as the prophet Elisha came through on numerous occasions, and they offered him food and, and provided for him. And she says to her husband uh, on uh, one particular occasion, you know, this, this prophet of God, he comes through here just every once in a while, and couldn't we make a room for him, a place for him? Uh, on the roof of our house so that we know he's always got a place and he knows he's always got a place he's always got a place where he is welcome and he can come and he can stay here a place where he can rest and refresh and renew himself they maintained an abiding welcome There are dangers to us at Christmas time, and we've already mentioned to us, uh, we've already mentioned about Simeon how the world often will seek to control. But the dangers of Christmas time, often the frantic activity that that goes along with it, and even around the church. Um, <laughs> you know, there have been times in in our history we've done. Uh, Christmas dinners for the church board. Uh, we've had uh, open house at the parsonage for all of the church, anybody that, that wanted to come. And quite frankly, in recent years, those are things that we have allowed to slip to the back burner, not because we don't want to do them and you don't matter to us. You matter very much to us. And, and we would love to welcome you into our home and, and feed you and enjoy fellowship together. However, we have come to the realization, my wife and I especially, that there is so much frantic activity and busyness taking place at Christmas time that we don't need anything to distract us any more than we already are distracted. But to do everything possible to maintain our focus on the presence of God in our home and in our activities. Another danger is in the midst of frantic activity, there is forgotten worship. Most of you, if you are honest, when I ask you the question, when you are extra busy, what is usually the first thing that gets forgotten? And most often for many of us, it is our daily time of Bible reading and prayer. We've been up too late the night before. We get up the next morning and 
there's so many demands on our time and so many pressures. And if anything, it's, Lord, I'll just, you know, maybe quote a few verses from memory on my way out the door and say a prayer on my way down the road. And, and in the midst of frantic activity, we have forgotten daily worship. And what that all amounts to is then a failure to welcome the Christ child into our hearts and into our lives and into our presence. One of my favorite stories from Christmas time, and I think I tell this story probably almost every year. Um, but it's a story about a little boy named Wallace Perling, who he, he was about nine years old. I think he, he should have been in fourth grade, but he was only in second grade. He was bigger than all the other children and, and a little bit awkward and a little bit behind, a little bit slow, a little bit simple. But he got along pretty well with all the children. They seemed to like him. He was perpetually standing up for the underdogs. And uh, Wallace was excited one year to have an opportunity to take part in the Christmas nativity play. He wanted to be a shepherd because the shepherds got to carry little flutes, little penny whistles. And and, oh, he thought that would be so much fun, but Miss Lombard, the director of the children's Christmas play, thought that Wallace, because he was a little bit bigger than most of the other children, he would be perfect for the part of the innkeeper, because Wallace couldn't remember things very well, and the innkeeper didn't have very many lines to say, and he was bigger, and he would be able to put on that rough and gruff uh, exterior, uh, uh, you know, act out that part. No one on stage or off the stage was more caught up in the magic of that night than Wallace Perling. They said later that Wally had stood in the wings uh, of the stage and watched the performance with such fascination that Miss Lombard, the director, had to make sure he didn't wander on stage before his cue. Then the time came when Joseph appeared and slowly, tenderly guiding the little girl who was playing the part of Mary, they approached the door to the inn and Joseph knocked hard on the wooden door set into the painted backdrop and Wally, the innkeeper, was there waiting and he opened the door and gruffly said, what do you want? And Joseph said, we seek lodging. And Wally said, seek it elsewhere. The inn is filled. But Joseph said, sir, we have asked everywhere in vain. We've traveled far and we're very weary. And Wally said as sternly as he could muster, well, there's no room in this inn for you. Be gone. But please, good innkeeper. This is my wife, Mary, and she's about to have a baby and needs a place to rest. Surely you must have some small corner for her. She's so tired. And now for the first time, the innkeeper 
played by little Wally, relaxed his stiff posture and his countenance softened and he looked down at Mary. And with that, there was a long pause, long enough to make the audience a little bit uncomfortable and embarrassed because it seemed that Wally was forgetting his lines and what he was supposed to do. And the prompter behind the curtain whispered to Wally, no, be gone, to remind him of his lines. And so Wally automatically, without thinking, again repeated, no, be gone. And Joseph, sadly, with shoulders slumped, turned and led Mary away with his arm uh, around her. And Wally stood there in the doorway watching the forlorn couple. His brow creased with concern, his eyes filling unmistakably with tears and his chin beginning to quiver. And suddenly this Christmas nativity play became different from all of the others as little Wally's face lit up with a bright smile and he said, Wait, Joseph, don't go. Bring Mary back. You can have my room. I don't want anything to cause me to miss Christmas. I want to be certain that there's room in my heart for the Lord Jesus. And I just want to remind you this morning that Christmas is coming. And whatever you have to do, even if you have to disappoint a friend or family member. It's worth doing if it means you make room for Jesus in your heart at Christmas time. Let's stand together, please.